Yeah, this is really weird. I've never used this before. I think the first time I saw it was like on like a K-pop thing back in elementary school, so it's really weird. Um, but anyways, thank you guys for having me. Uh, my name is Jason, for those of you guys who don't know. That's my wife, Hannah. Um, she is absolutely my better half. It's a miracle that I survived my 20s as a single person. And I'm not kidding. Like, it, it really is a miracle because I am the same person that can eat a bag of Doritos, like the family size, for dinner. And I kid you not, I've done that a lot, and now I eat like a king. And so um, it really is a miracle that I'm alive. I should be dead. <laughs> um, also want to give a quick shout out to uh, Pastor Q and Joyce Hamanim. Obviously, they're not here right now, but also to Miss Ann and Elder Susan for just really be cha being champions for me um, in my walk with God. I'll go into details a little bit more as I share my story, um, but they have been absolute champions in my life, and uh, I, I don't believe I would be here without their support. So thank you guys very, very much. And uh, I'll share a little bit about my history because... Um, some of you guys know that I went to the University of Maryland and I was saved there, like radically saved at a college party at the University of Maryland. Like it wasn't one of those gradual things. I was like kind of, it wasn't like those like back and forth things. I was like 100% in darkness and the lights came on 100%. So that was like at a college party, which is why I have a huge heart to reach the lost on college campuses because if God can do it for me, he can do it for anyone, right? So that's really where my walk with God like seriously, seriously begins, okay? Um, and so, oh, I have this. I was going to ask someone else to help me, but there we go. Okay, so um, a lot of you guys don't know uh, what happened after I got saved. I think a lot of you guys have heard my story before in the past, but basically I got saved uh, my junior year of college. After I finished, I went straight into seminary with this mindset and attitude, like, I'm going to save the world by myself because everyone in the church is not doing it. I'm going to be the savior of this world. Like, I really had that mentality going into seminary, um, and I burned out in, like, two weeks. Like, really, really burned out. After a year, I was so burnt out, I asked my friends, um, that guy on the far right trying to eat my face right there, his name is Sam Choi. He stood in my wedding party, and um, I met him as I was burning out, and he talked to me, and he said, hey, why don't you think about coming to YWAM Kona for a little bit and just get refreshed and detox and all of that? And I said, okay. So I went to Kona. This is me in Kona. Um, these are some of my, that guy on the far right, his name is Jace. He's a model. Like, he's a real model. I don't think he's a model anymore, but he was my roommate, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I went to Alaska for my outreach, and that is the Northern Lights. I'm not doing any ministry in this picture, as you can tell. This is my teammates. Um, just a fun fact, the girl on the far this side, that's Ellen Hackett. That's Laura Hackett's sister. The person that she's standing right next to is Jonathan Engel. That's Lou Engel's son. And they were not really dating during our outreach, but they would run off and flirt. And I was like, what's going on? And now they're married with kids. So uh, that's how it turned out. This is, again, me not doing any ministry, just hanging out with glaciers and really suffering for the gospel. Um, this is me pretending like I'm Harry Potter, apparently. Um, we had fireworks in Alaska. It's not a big deal there, so um, played with that. Uh, this, after Alaska, I came back, um, and I really felt called to go back into YWAM and to really focus on college campuses. I really felt called to 
uh, be a missionary in America, so to speak. I felt like there were a lot of problems all around the world, but God convicted me um, and said, if you can't take care of your own backyard, your own nation, what are you bringing to the nations? And so uh, I really felt called to do DTS here. That's Washington, D.C. We were really cold, and we were doing worship in front of the White House and the Supreme Court. This was when uh, there was a really big turmoil about the Supreme Court ruling about abortion and whatnot. So we were doing worship there. Um, this is us in Columbia University uh, just offering healing. We saw tons of miracles, a lot of them not on campuses, I promise you. Missions is a lot harder in Ivy League campuses. It was super hard, um, but we were doing it. We were plowing. Um, I came back, and for about three years, I was a youth pastor in Northern Virginia. Uh, these are some of my kids. Um, I absolutely love them, and I still miss them. Um, I got a chance to run into them a while ago. They've been a big part of my walk with God. Um, this is a picture of me, us, doing ministry in Thailand, if you guys know, with Life Impact. Awesome, awesome time. We love what Lana does. We love... Life impact, all of that. So um, that's just a quick Zoom snapshot of where I've been. And um, just want to share real quick about what it was like at YWAM. I really thought that I was going to be a missionary forever. Like, I was like, I really want to go to the nations. And um, I quickly learned as I was doing ministry with YWAM that that was not where I was going to call or be called like long-term. And here's why. On my way to Alaska, this is a fun story. Actually, let me rewind a little bit. So I'm in Kona, right? We're in our lecture phase. And basically, we're hearing all of these like huge, well-known speakers speak. Um, I remember Lou Engel was one of our speakers. And he said, I'm going to give you guys the keys and the secret to breaking strongholds of our nations. And we're all like, yeah, like tell us the secret. And he goes, it's the weapon. And we're like, uh-huh, of, uh-huh, extended fasting. And we're like, nope. <laughs> Nobody wants to fast. I'm too hungry for that, right? Like, I'm in Kona. I love Kona food. Like, I want the spam and curry and all that. But um, he told us that, and we're like, okay, like, let's do this thing. So anyways, I'm in that season, and um, out of nowhere, I'm in a lecture, and I hear the word Alaska on my head. Like, just like heard Alaska out of nowhere. And I was like, God, I'm not going to Alaska. I'm about to start seminary at Regent University. And I thought about it. I was like, there's no way I can do seminary in Alaska because I'm not going. And it's going to overlap with my um, time in seminary. So I called seminary. And I was like, I don't know if this is even possible because I don't really even want to do it. But is it possible for me to do seminary classes while in Alaska? And they go, yeah, we just started online classes. Why don't you do that? I was like, oh, Okay. And then I thought about it. I was like, is there even an outreach group going to Alaska? Like, I didn't even know if there was. So I went up to one of the leaders, and I was like, hey, is there an outreach group to Alaska? And they're like, yeah, those people are leading it. And so I was like, oh, I think I have to go to Alaska. So on my way to Alaska, I had no clothes, right? Because I was in Hawaii. I wasn't planning on going to Alaska. So I flew back home for like a day, packed my stuff, and then took the next flight over to Alaska. And on my way to Alaska, we stopped in Seattle for a layover. And this is a true story. I am on the plane, and I'm about to finish reading the book, Heaven is for Real. Do you guys know that book? Really good book. My friend recommended it to me, Sam. And so I finished reading the book. I'm in the plane, 
and there's a person sitting right next to me, and I'm so moved by the book. Like, I'm like, heaven is for real. Like, it's so real to me. And I'm like, so moved and gripped. And I'm like, God, I have to do something with this. And then I see this gentleman sitting right next to me. Uh, he's Indian in descent. And I remember seeing a picture as I'm just like praying and thinking with God. And I see a picture of a woman in bed, and she looks sick. And so I'm like, that's really weird. I'm like, I don't really want to do anything with this word. But then I thought about, I was like, okay, God, like, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but if you get, for those of you who have done prophetic evangelism, like, you really wrestle with God for like the first 20 minutes. You're like, God, is this really you? Could be me. I don't know if I'm going to do it. If I do it, how stupid will I look? Is it worth it? You start doing the balancing act. And finally, I was like, after 20 minutes, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. So I start speaking to this guy and I go, hey, you don't know me. I don't know you. We just met. <laughs> this is what I see. And so I start telling him about like this picture I have about a woman who looks sick in bed and there's a person that's watching her. And I'm like, I have no idea what it means. And then he stops and he doesn't say anything. And I'm like, cool, I messed up. I'm like, okay, God, I'm sorry. I like heard wrong. And he turns to me and he goes, actually, I'm going to Seattle because my best friend's wife is sick and in the hospital right now. And they're asking me to come because they don't know if she's going to make it. And then so I said immediately, like an idiot, God's going to heal her. And I was like, I don't even know if that's true. I'm like, God's got you. Like, you're going, but God has you. And so then I don't know what to do because it's really awkward because he's not saying anything. So I take out the book, Heaven is for Real, and I go, hey, I want you to have this book. Jesus loves you. He's real. Have this book. And he takes the book, and he looks at me, and he goes, can you sign it? I was like, <laughs> I didn't write the book, but sure. So I wrote him a little note. I signed my autograph as if I wrote the book. I even left my phone number there. It's not the same number anymore, and I never saw him again. But that was what it was like for me, the entire missions experience, like miracle after miracle. There was a lot of failures also, but there was a lot of miracles. Um, I in credit, paid for my entire DTS on a card, not knowing if I was going to get it all back. The day before, someone gives a ridiculous donation to my outreach leaders, and the outreach leaders feel called to give it all away to our, our team, and it comes out to be to the dime the amount that I needed to pay off everything. So it was like that, and on my way home, I'm feeling really tired and exhausted, and I felt like God said, what did God say? I'm thinking, I lost my train of thought. That's not what God said. Okay, so I'm on my way home, and I'm really exhausted, and I felt like something was still missing in my heart. And I couldn't, like, put my finger on it because we saw all these miracles happen. Like, God had constantly been providing for us step by step, and yet something felt like it was missing. And so I come home, and I start reading this book. I pick it up from a friend. Um, and it's this book called The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nouwen. Have you guys ever heard of Henry Nouwen before? He's one of my favorite authors. And he opens this book with a similar story like mine. He says he's been doing ministry all over the world, traveling, and he's really exhausted. And he's looking for a home. Like he really wants to rest. And he's trying to find a place. And he still feels like he's in turmoil. He doesn't know what to do. He just really wants to go home and just like find rest, just rest. That's what he's looking for. And he goes to this picture, 
and he can't take his eyes off of it. And there's something about this picture where he goes, this is me, like, I need to come home. Like, he's doing ministry, but he feels like he needs to come home and rest, okay? He actually goes to this real painting because his friend hooks him up with it, and then his friend says this to him, okay? Have you guys ever started a movie and the ending is not what you thought it would be, right? Like, there are times where it's a good thing because it's surprising. There are times where it's like, no, that's not supposed to happen. Like, you guys have seen Infinity Wars, right? Like, the ending of Infinity Wars, I was, like, shocked. Like, how dare you? (laughs) How can you end a movie that way, right? Like, I wasn't expecting that. That is the same exact way I felt when this was the end of the first chapter. Because I bought the book thinking, I'm going to get rest for my heart. Like, Henry Nouwen gets me. Like, we feel each other. And then this is the quote that I read. Whether you are the younger son or the elder son, you have to realize that you are called to become the father. I was not ready to hear that because I just wanted to be a baby again, someone to take care of me, someone feed me, someone provide for me, someone reach out to me, notice my feelings, notice that I'm missing. And I see this and I'm like, wait, what? Let's keep reading. And this is Sue talking to Henry. They're they're really good friends. She says this, You have been looking for friends all your life. You have been craving for affection as long as I've known you. You have been interested in thousands of things. You have been begging for attention, appreciation, and affirmation left and right. The time has come to claim your true vocation, to be a father who can welcome the children home without asking them any questions and without wanting anything from them in return. Look at the father in your painting and you will know what you are called to be. We at Daybreak and most people around you don't need you to be a good friend or even a kind brother. We need you to be a father who can claim for himself the authority of true compassion. I read that and I didn't want to finish the book because I was like, that's not what I need to hear. But I kept reading. And he says this, I am the younger son, I am the older son, and I'm on my way to becoming the father. Super profound. At the end of this book, in this journey, he actually realizes that his call is not to travel all around the world, and he lives the rest of his life among a disabled community, just loving disabled people. That's where he found his true calling. So I'm reading this, and I'm going, what do I do with this? Like, is this really what I want to do? Like, I know I'm called to ministry, but is it really to be a father? Like, I'm not even a father, right? Uh, Also, I'm not a father right now. Right? I'm an uncle. My brother and sister in law just had their kid. This is a true story. Like, when she was first born, she must have seen like a red target on me because every time I picked her up, she would throw up on me or she would like blow out of her diapers on me. And like, I just couldn't understand it. Right? But every time she did that, and the next time I saw her, do you think I was like, all right, Haven, here's what I'm going to do. I really love you, but I'm going to wait for another year until you learn how to, you know, not throw up on me. And then I'll pick you up and then I'll love you. That's not what I did. I couldn't help but pick her up again. It didn't matter how many times she did it, right? And so when God is calling me into spiritual fatherhood and God is calling all of us into spiritual fatherhood, that's what it's like to let people literally vomit on you 
and for you in your heart because you have the heart of God to say, I can't help but love you again. Haven isn't even my kid. And I pick her up every time. Thank God she's grown up a little bit. So that's Haven. Um, but let's go into the text. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to read out of Luke 15. I'm not going to go all the way in because it's a really long chapter, but I do want to touch on a few points here. Luke 15, chapter, I'm sorry, Luke 15, verse 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. Okay? I underlined tax collectors and sinners because these are the two groups of people that Jesus is speaking to, right? Uh, we all have heard a lot about the sinners. Those are the people that are the bad guys. We don't really want to you know, associate with ourselves with them. Like, those are the people where our parents are like, don't hang out with that guy. That guy is going to get you into trouble, right? Those are the sinners that we don't associate with, okay? But tax collectors is a very specific group of people. And here's why people really did not like tax collectors. Because the Roman government was invading into their, their government, and they are operating off of their taxes. Which means, even though the Roman government was corrupt, and they were allowed to just walk into people's houses and do whatever they want, steal resources, abuse any of their rights. The tax collectors are people who are local to the land who are actually gathering taxes so that the Roman government can keep operating. That's the tax collectors that Jesus is talking to. And so these people are there, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay? So it kind of makes sense, right? These are people where they're like, they're traitors. They're helping another government exist instead of helping us. Okay? So Jesus told them this terrible, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he says, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. So just, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay. Uh, just a quick biblical explanation. This is actually in reference to Ezekiel 34, 11 through 12. Where G, uh, I'm sorry, God says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd who seeks his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So Jesus is kind of taking this passage to talk to Pharisees and sinners in the same place, right? Pharisees and scribes are generally known to be really good at the Bible. So when Jesus references this, the Pharisees probably knew what Jesus was talking about. It's kind of a sting if you're a Pharisee, right? Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to shepherd my people. Okay? Let's go on to Luke 15, 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. 
Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay. That passage makes more sense when uh, I heard this guy named Chris Dupre. He talked about this passage and it like totally blew my mind. Okay. That one coin in the text, if you look at the footnotes of your Bible, it actually says that one coin is equal to one drachma, which is the equivalent of one day's wage. Okay. So an average American worker gets paid $24.57 per hour or $850.12 per week. One day's wage is $170.02. That is one coin. So you multiply that by 10, it's about, what, $1,702, something like that. Doing math off the top of my head. Okay. One of these coins, if you think about it practically, is not that much money. If you're working every day, if you lose one coin, it really isn't something where you have to turn on all the lights and like look diligently after because you're frantic that you've lost something absolutely valuable. It's one day's wages. It's a lot of money, but it's not that much money. It's not like a million dollars, right? If you think about it. So why is this woman looking so diligently for the coin, sweeping everything? And here's why. And I love this example. Okay. That is a coin collection that is literally worth only $22, but this thing is being sold for over $3,000 as a set. You guys see where I'm going? This coin collection, if you take one coin out, not only does the coin lose its value, the entire set loses its value. So it is no longer worth over $3,000. It might be brought down to $21 if you lose one coin. Does that make sense? So when Jesus is saying that it is, they rejoiced and threw a party because one coin was found, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and saying, look, your value is not found apart from the sinners and the tax collectors. Your value is really found in community, together, in a home. Does that make sense? Okay. So Jesus is addressing this, this group over here. They're the sinners. And he's saying, I'm going to shepherd you. There are leaders in your life who have not been shepherding you. I'm going to take care of you. And then Jesus talks to this group here, the Pharisees and tax collectors, and says, your value is with them, and it's not separate from them. Amen? Okay. So, after hearing all of this and just going through this journey of uh, just spiritual fatigue. Um, I'm going to be a little bit honest and real with you guys. After my first year of seminary, I really questioned whether or not I was going to go into ministry as a pastor again. And then after I came back from missions, I questioned it even more. And I remember calling some friends and thinking, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. Like, is it supposed to be this hard to go through seminary? Like, all you're doing is reading the Bible and studying the Bible and loving people, right? Like, why is it this hard for me? And I questioned whether or not I was ever going to be a pastor. And this is why I absolutely honor Pastor Q and Pastor Mimi, because I came back, and the first thing they did was they took me everywhere on these ministry trips. I drove to Georgia. Um, Pastor Q is a difficult man to say no to. And I don't think he really cares what your answer is. I think he tells you as if you're going to say yes anyway. So I remember there were like random Sundays where he's like, hey, let's go to Georgia. Okay. <laughs> so I go to this ministry trip with him to Georgia. 
And then I'm really tired. I come back home. I'm still studying. And I pass the queue out of nowhere. He goes, hey, I have like three weeks sabbatical. Do you want to go on a house of prayer tour with me all across the East Coast? I was like, okay. <laughs> so we do this journey and we go, we go to all of these houses of prayer. And I didn't understand this then, but I understand it now because after that season, I became a youth pastor and I found myself doing the same thing. I will tell the youth students, I'm going on this retreat. You come with me and share your testimony. And I realized immediately that Pastor Q was teaching me how to be a spiritual father. Not just to be a spiritual son, but to be a spiritual father. And that's when the dots really started to connect. Okay? I also, this is a side note, I, I really grew up just having a huge heart for homeless people. Um, I don't know where it came from. It probably was God, but I just remember like just never being okay with the homeless, just being on the sides of the streets. And so um, what I did one season was I took a bunch of people and I said, hey, we're going to make lunches and give them to the homeless people and we're going to pray for them. That was really fun. But I remember just hearing their stories, just asking them questions like, you know, like, what's your story? How did you end up here? Some of them, it is due to addiction. Some of them, it's not at all. Some of them, uh, they got estranged from their family, so they had no one to turn to at the time. And um, this one person, I w I'll never forget this, because you always have this, like, stigma about homeless people. And I remember giving him water and a lunch, and I just asked him, I was like, how can I pray for you? And he was like, well, can you pray that I make enough money today so that I can help everyone else get a hotel room with me and we can all wash up? I was like, what? What do you mean? He was like, see that guy on that corner? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, see that guy on that corner? I'm like, yeah, I see him. He goes, we're all working together. And I'm like, oh, I see where this is going. Like, oh, you're going to try to, you know, pull my wallet. So you're going to start telling me like, yeah, you guys are saving up and you're working together. And he goes, we have this deal going on where if we bring our money together, if we can afford a hotel room, we will do it. There's a really cheap hotel in D.C., and we'll all get the room together, and we'll all wash up for the night. My heart broke. And as some homeless people would say, yeah, my family, they don't want to take care of me anymore because they've been taking care of me all of their lives. And so my heart broke, and as I'm leaving this, I also remember God dropping this little nugget in my heart because I had a really hard time, as I mentioned, understanding what it means to be a pastor and just what it means to be a spiritual father. And he drops this in my heart. And he goes, think about what it's like for someone to be spiritually homeless. And I thought about it. And I was like, what does it mean to be spiritually homeless? And he like started unpacking this for like years. What does it mean for people, whether they're physically homeless or not, to be spiritually homeless where they don't have a community to come to on Sundays? What are the implications of that? So I'm thinking about this, and by coincidence, I stumble across this podcast on my way to work, okay? And it's this person, Johan, Johan, I don't, I'm really bad with names, Johan Yari, I think. I could be wrong. He's a uh, scientist, researcher, psychologist kind of person, okay? And I'm just going to read this to you guys. This is an excerpt from the podcast and I wouldn't do justice if I said it my way, so I'm just going to read it. And he's talking about people who are separated from a tribe, right? So if you got separated from the tribe, 
in history. If you were alone, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason. You were about to be eaten or you were in terrible danger. If you got injured, no one would help you and you would die. When we are stressed, we release a hormone called cortisol. It's a built-in alarm system. That's my bit right there in parentheses. He showed this in an experiment in a book. Okay, He's talking about a different researcher. Being acutely lonely is as stressful as being punched in the face by a stranger when it comes to cortisol release. Which means you being lonely, the amount of hormones that's released because you're lonely and you're stressed is the same amount if you walked out into school or into work and some random person decides to hit you. That amount of stress is the same amount measured in cortisol hormones. That's how deeply we are resistant to loneliness. It's a signal telling us to get back to the tribe. Okay? And he talks a little bit about this woman who was a refugee. She grew up in Turkey and then she moved to Germany, right? Turkey was uh, at the time not as developed as Germany. So she goes to Germany, okay? And she says this, when I grew up in Turkey, what I called my home, as soon as I heard that word, I was like, I like where this is going. What I called my home in Turkey was my village and everyone in it. And then I came to live in the Western world. And I learned that what you were meant to call home is just your four walls. And if you're lucky, your family. She realized that we are homeless in a sense in the Western world. Humans have a need for a sense of belonging, and our sense of home is too small to meet our sense of belonging. There are, there's a Bosnian writer named Alexander Heman who said, home is where people notice when you're not there. A lot of us, who notices they're not there? Probably no one. They are, in a sense, homeless. Okay, I love this line. I love this line, because this is a secular podcast. They are spiritually homeless, and I'm not a religious person. Do you know what I mean? He literally just diagnosed the entire nation, maybe more of the United States, and he ends it by saying, and I'm not a religious person, but he can see a spiritually homeless person when he sees one. Okay. So what I felt God was really stirring in my heart, and what I feel is a call for not just me, but for a lot of you guys on Father's Day, is that we are called to become the father. Just like Henry Nouwen said, at one point, we were all the younger son, rebellious. At one point, we're all the older brother, bitter and resentful. But we are all called to become the father. We're called to build a home for the spiritually homeless, like to notice and actually feel when someone is not there. Their absence must be felt in our home. Being compassionate to both the younger son and the older brother. And I know uh, this is obvious in Luke 15, but I have found that it is, in my life, it is way harder to love the older brother than the younger son. Because the younger brother, at least they know that when they come back, they know they've done something wrong. But the older brother, the father has to go out and plead and convince him to come and join the celebration. Right? And becoming like a father is just being where the father is and trusting that he'll do the heavy lifting. Uh, I want to read this one quote, and I'm going to share a story, and then uh, we're going to go into ministry time or closing. We'll see how it goes. Um, but Henry Nouwen says this, 
And this is towards the end of the book where he's landing the plane and I'm like, okay, Henry Nowen, you got my attention. You're a good writer, okay? He says this, Jesus shows us what true sonship is. He is the younger son without being rebellious. He is the elder son without being resentful. In everything, he is obedient to the father, but never his slave. He hears everything his father says, but this does not make him his servant. He does everything the father sends him to do, but remains completely free. He gives everything and receives everything. He gives everything, yet receives everything. And so God is still working on me. I'm still finishing up seminary. And uh, I decide to also work full-time and go into the workforce. And um, I was really asking the Lord, like, isn't this backwards? Like, if I'm called to go into ministry and I'm going into the workforce, like, you know, where am I going? Like, this is not adding up. And I quickly knew that God had really wanted to stretch my understanding of what it means to be in a spiritual home. A spiritual home, again, someone who's spiritually homeless is when you don't notice that they're missing. Okay? That's someone who's spiritually homeless. Okay? So I start this new job in McLean, and I am like super like cheery, super hopeful. I'm like, I'm going to love somebody. I don't know who you are yet, but I'm going to love you, and I'm going to bless you. So I'm like super happy. People think I'm really weird. I actually heard someone say, like someone asked this girl like who I was. She's like, oh, he's just a super happy guy. He's like always happy. You can't miss him. So that was me for a while, and I was just like smiling and like, <laughs> like let's do work. I don't know who you are, but when I find you, I'm going to love you and bless you. Okay? So I'm doing work like this, and like maybe a month in, I had this really weird dream, and I remember talking to my wife about it. It was super weird. In the dream, I'm in like a high school cafeteria, and I see a raccoon that's like just like going into the cafeteria, right? And I'm an animal lover. If you guys don't know, I love the dodo. Shout out to Lamanan. Um, but I love animals, and I remember in the dream, like, there's a really cute raccoon. So I'm like, sorry, Lam. <laughs> I didn't mean to call you out. But um, in the dream, there's a raccoon, and I'm like, oh, this raccoon is so cute. Like, I want to go and pet it. Like, I want to go protect it. I want to go, like, you know, show my affection on the raccoon. And then out of nowhere, everyone starts throwing food at it and start yelling at the raccoon and, like, trying to kick it. The raccoon, like, runs away. And I'm like, why did everyone do that? Like, that's so mean. And I wake up, and I'm, like, thinking to myself, I'm like, what the heck does that dream mean? So I did what every spiritual person does. I Googled raccoon in uh, the Internet and said spiritual definition of a raccoon in the Bible. Okay? I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I remember coming across a definition, and it's from... Who knows if it's a reliable site, but it was the best I had at the, at the time. And it was Christian dream interpretations. And the raccoon, <laughs> the raccoon, according to this website, who bases our website off of the Bible, says that a raccoon is a deceitful animal and takes advantage of people. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, so I'm, I think the raccoon is cute and I'm trying to protect it, but it's actually deceiving me or deceiving people, and I'm like, what's going on? Okay, fast forward a day, I go into work, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, who am I called to love? I'm still wrestling with this, and I think it's my boss at the time. So I'm like, oh, maybe I'm just called to minister to him. That day, 
my other coworker, who will, let's call him Joseph, just because I don't want to say his real name, but his name is Joseph. He opens up to me and he starts cursing like a sailor, like just like blatantly cussing everything, just super angry. And I'm like, whoa. By the way, he's like 40 or 45 years old. So he was at the time probably old enough to be my dad. So I'm like, what is going on? And so I'm like, dude, are you okay? Like, what's going on? And then so we start talking a little bit more. And I find out that the boss has been manipulating him and taking advantage of him in ways that is really wrong. And so he's starting to open up to me. Um, some of you guys have heard this story. But he opens up to me and he goes, when I joined the company, I had chronic teeth pain. I was like, what do you mean chronic teeth pain? Why do you have chronic teeth pain? Like, you have cavities? Like, just go to the dentist, dude. And then he starts opening up a little bit more. And he said, the boss told me, he promised me that he was going to give me good dental care so I can get my teeth fixed. I'm like, okay, dude, just go to the dentist. He was like, he hasn't given it to me yet. And I was like, okay, so he hasn't given you dental care, but you could probably still afford dental work. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I grew up really, 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 really poor. We didn't have access to running water until I was 13, which meant that was the first time I brushed my teeth. So he's had chronic teeth pain, mouth pain, for over 40 years of his life. And he took the job for a very low pay because he promised that he would give him dental treatment, that he would cover it. And so I'm like, okay, the dream is starting to make sense a little bit. Like, okay, so I start talking to him a little bit more. Um, I tell him this dream, <laughs> this is funny, I tell him this dream, and he's actually a Catholic, like, he, he's a devout Catholic. And so he believes in the spiritual, but uh, he doesn't believe it's for everyone, he thinks it's for the priests. And so I'll tell him stories about, like, missions fields, about, like, seeing demons being casted out, and, like, you know, all of these deliverance stories. And he stops and he goes, whoa, do you think our boss has a demon? <laughs> so true story, I kid you not, and he's, like, super serious about it. If you fast forward like three or four months, he gets fired um, unjustly, and he does not have dental care, and he does not have money. And so for two years, we're talking. He called me a lot. <laughs> I didn't call him as much, but I just really felt like I was saying, like, he's spiritually homeless. Just, just notice when he's not there. So, okay, so I'm like calling him back. We're talking on the phone. And I'm like praying for him. He goes into a job interview and I'll text him and I'll go, hey, I'm praying for you. I want you to know that. He'll call me back and go, I didn't get the job. So it just, it was like that back and forth for two years. And there was one time where it got really bad, where he was really battling depression. Um, it got to the point where there was one time where I called because he sent me a weird text saying that he doesn't know if he can do it anymore. And he wouldn't pick up or respond to my call for like two hours. And so I was worried um, because he had talked about ending his life, like to be blunt. And so I was very concerned. He called me back and thankfully he just fell asleep for two hours. He took a really long nap. <laughs> two years after he gets fired, we're praying, we're talking. I'm trying to encourage him. I'm trying to give him hope. And I don't know where this is going. Two years after, he calls me and he goes, hey, this company just, wants, just wanted to give me a government clearance. And so I took it. 
And as I took it, I interviewed for another company in the government, like the big three-letter governments. Ms. Ann knows all about those. Um, so he goes in for an interview there, and they go, hey, we like you. We're going to upgrade your clearance that you're in process for, and we'll upgrade it to the highest one. And he goes, okay, sure. He walks out of the interview. As he walks out of the interview, there's a person on the phone that's frustrated because he's trying to get this technology working in his system. And he's just being like a casual person, and he goes, and the guy is saying, why can't we get this up and running? Like, so you're telling me basically we can't do this, and he explains the problem. And he hangs up the phone. My friend walks by, and he goes, actually, you can do that, and here's how. And he explains the process. And the guy goes, who are you? And then my friend Joseph goes, oh, I actually, I'm just here for an interview, but I overheard your conversation. And I actually used to do that, and I know you can do that. And he goes, oh, you're here for the interview? Come on to my office. And then he realizes the, that guy thinks he's here for the interview that he's applying for, but he didn't apply for that position. He applied for another position that he just walked out of. They have a conversation, and they realize that he didn't apply for this position, but he likes him, and he happens to be a director at the government and says, I like your clearance, but I'm going to do you one more and get you a step above. And he goes, I didn't even know there was a step above. And he goes, there's a step above. And so he walks out and he calls me and he goes, what the heck is going on? <laughs> like for two years, no one wanted to hire me. He's working like hourly salary, like minimum wage. Okay. And now he can't keep people off of him. <laughs> and he's like, what is going on? What is going on? And so like, I was like, so what are you going to do? He was like, I'm just going to take the first thing that really comes, I guess. I don't really know. And then he gets a call from Florida, Pensacola, which is like a retirement area. And the guy's like a little bit older, so it was appealing to him. The guy says this. He goes, we like your clearance. We like your skill set. If you come here in two weeks, we'll give you this salary, which happens to be a 500% raise. And we'll we'll wait for you if you can come in two weeks. And he goes, okay, I'll come in two weeks. He moves to Florida. He's still confused because he's like, what the heck is going on, right? And he calls me on the phone on the way down and he tells me that him and his wife are like crying. And they're like, we are people, we'd like to think like we're like not terrible people. And he says this, I'm glad that none of our prayers were answered over the two years. And his exact words are this, I could not have imagined a better ending to this season than the one God is giving me. And now he wants me and Hannah to come over to Pensacola to visit him. And so it's stories like that. And I can tell you endless stories in the marketplace and church where we are called to be spiritual fathers. The guy is old enough to physically be my father. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't think I know more than him. I just know that God loves him. If we could get the worship team up here, and this is how I do want to close. On this Father's Day, I really felt like when Pastor Q asked me to share on Father's Day, I was like, well, I'm not a father, and this is my first sermon at Hope Church. Could not be a better fit. <laughs> but then I quickly realized, like, this is the journey that God has been taking me on, what it means to be a spiritual father. I don't think I'm there yet. Like, absolutely not. I don't think that I'm, like, doing anything significant. I'm just being available and loving people. 
in the best ways that I know how. Sometimes it's really awkward. Sometimes people don't want to hang out with me after, but I do it anyway. I just keep hanging out and talking to people who do. Um, there was a, another coworker that I used to work with. Actually, let me share this part first. And this is where it really came to me. Um, we were at Dart Dartmouth College, Dartmouth with YWAM, and we were doing outreach on frat row on a Friday night. <laughs> so do the math. There are people who are like totally gone. They're just trying to let loose. And so I realized that if you do outreach on a college campus on like normal hours, people really don't want to get prayed for. But on a Friday night in frat row, nobody cares. <laughs> and so people are walking by and I'm like, hey, Jesus loves you. And they're like, all right, dude. And they like walk away. There are some people who flicked me off. And I was like, whoa, like where did that come from? And so we're praying for all these people. And at the end of it, um, there was a person that was just standing there. And so I started talking to him. I was like, hey, like, can I pray for you? And he's like, what's your angle? I'm like, uh, I just want to pray for you, man. He was like, who sent you? I was like, Jesus? <laughs> he was like, no, 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 no. What organization sent you? Where are you from? And I'm like, I, I don't know, man. Like, I'm here with my friends, and we, we're just here to love people. He was like, so you, no one sent you? They're like, no, like, we really just want to do it. And they're like, he's like, no one sent you? And he starts opening up about how he struggled with homosexuality all of his life and how he grew up in a Catholic church, so the Catholic church pretty much kicked him out. And he said, like, you're the first person who said you just wanted to pray for me. Like, he was like, that's weird. Like, usually people have some sort of, like, track or whatever. And so we start praying for him. And as we're praying for him, a drunk college student walks up, and he sees my Bible. It's a, it's a complete Jewish Bible. I'm like a Messianic Jew nerd. I love Messianic Jew theology. So I have a Jewish Bible. So he grabs my shoulders while I'm praying for him, and he starts singing in Hebrew, like really obnoxiously. And in my flesh, I'm like, I'm going to punch this guy. <laughs> but then I thought about it real quick, and I was like, what would the father do? Like the father, what would, how would the father plead with him? And so I turn around, and I go, you're Jewish. And he goes, uh, yeah. And I'm like, thank you. He's like, for what? I was like, thank you, I'm a Christian, and my story is so integrated with yours. Thank you for being the chosen people of Israel from the beginning. And he starts freaking out. He's like, what? And then he was like, why are you saying this? And I was like, God loves you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And he goes, no, but I just, I'm, I'm such a bleep bleep. Expletives come out, and he's like, no, 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 Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And he, he breaks down, and he goes, why does he love me? I'm such a, more expletives. And I was like, he just loves you, man. He loves you. He loves you. And so my challenge to you guys today is this, like, let's carry his fart. <laughs> I almost said fart. <laughs> let's carry the Father's heart to the world. Amen? Like, I really don't know what I'm doing. I look really stupid at times. I feel really stupid. A lot of times. My prayer, actually, believe it or not, when I do evangelism or try to love someone is, God, please don't let me say anything stupid. But let's get them. Because they're out there. And it's, it's been far too long that some people have been spiritually homeless. It's time to be that spiritual home for them. Amen.